This is a Federal News Network podcast. The General Services Administration not only oversees most federal buildings and offices, it also manages the artwork that graces them. It recently issued a new final rule for its Art in Architecture program, lifting what it calls restrictions on artistic subjects and themes, and to promote the administrator's equity goals. For more, we turn to the GSA's senior advisor to the administrator for equity, Andrea O'Neill. Ms. O'Neill, good to have you on. Hi, Tom. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, first of all, tell us this new rule, I guess, rescinds some of the restrictions on the artwork acquired for public buildings that were put in by the Trump administration. So it realigns the rulemaking based on a previously rescinded executive order and clarifies language that allows for a broader aperture of artwork to be considered for public commission. I guess the rule that was in place in between there then said it had to be showing the nation's founding principles and so on. It had several types of themes, and those have been pretty much pulled away to, as you say, expand the aperture. Correct. So the revocation of Executive Order 13967 was meant to further expand and diversify uh, the type of art that could be considered. And this rule now allows for clarification that the National Artist Registry is available to all representations and um, expressions of art styles for consideration. Yeah, there was that preference for a realistic style. And so maybe abstract can fit the bill. And now abstract is back as a possibility. Correct. All right. And let's back up just a moment and tell us the general process by which artwork is chosen for federal buildings. It's pretty involved, isn't it? Yes, and I'd like to actually start with how the program is defined, if that's okay. Sure. So the Art and Architecture Program commissions large-scale, permanently installed works for federal buildings under GSA's jurisdiction. So the commissions themselves are tied to congressionally authorized capital construction projects. And whenever GSA constructs a new federal facility or undertakes, as an example, a major modernization of an existing building, one half of 1% of the estimated construction costs for that project are available to commission artwork for the building that will again be a permanently installed piece. So in 1963, GSA started the Fine Arts and New Federal Buildings Program, a percent for art policy that in 1972 became the Art and Architecture Program. So we're actually celebrating 50 years of art and architecture this year. And so it's a great time to bring new focus to the program in the National Artist Registry. Since 1972, we've commissioned approximately 500 pieces for a total amount of about $67 million. And when you say major pieces of art, this could be inside or outside, like sculpture on a plaza, for example, in front of a building? Correct. It is both inside and outside. We do not do monuments or commemorative pieces, but the type of art is both thinking about the inside of the building and what is available for the federal workers that inhabit that building, you know, American public that goes to government buildings for uh, services, as well as the art that's outside of in the federal plaza. Um, as an example, the first art and architecture installation was the iconic Alexander Calder Flamingo, an abstract outdoor sculpture in Chicago's federal plaza. And there are a number of other art and architecture works that have been commissioned for interior spaces, including paintings and tapestries. For example, in our own GSA headquarters building here in D.C., there's a piece called Kites by Jacob Hashimoto that was installed in 2013 during a building modernization project. 
And again, no monuments or commemorative artworks are part of the scope, but it really um, gives an opportunity to make a statement about how our federal buildings are community members and what that exchange looks like between our federal buildings and the public. We're speaking with Andrea O'Neill, Senior Advisor to the Administrator for Equity at the General Services Administration. And for indoor art, then this could be like murals, but generally not something you would hang on a hook. Correct. These are large-scale pieces that are designed alongside the architectural client, the lead project managers, and are part of the architecture of the building. You mentioned before, I asked the question about selection. So just to give some insights to the process, for each project, GSA relies on an advisory panel. And that advisory panel is composed of local and national art experts, the project's lead architect, our federal client for the project, and the community representatives and other GSA staff. So they assist in the commissioning process. GSA picks the panel members, then panel members review the artist's portfolio recommendations to whittle it down to a small pool of finalists. And then GSA evaluates these finalists and awards the commission to the strongest candidate to develop the design concept. In the panel and review, within the artist concept, once approved, the artwork is fabricated and installed as part of the rest of the construction process. And some of these are fabricated or they're painted right on site, I guess, if it's on the wall permanently like a mural? Some of them could be. Many of them are designed off-site and then installed permanently. And then it's also important to note that GSA and our fine arts team are then responsible for the upkeep of that art that stays in the building. Sure. And you're the equity advisor, and this is a topic that everybody's talking about across the government these days. And so I'm presuming that you want to make sure that every possible worthy artist, regardless of background, is eligible and feels like they can compete fairly for the placement of art. Is that a fair way to put it? Exactly. And that's what the rule is really hoping to do, is both expand the size of the National Artist Registry, the diversity of National Artist Registry, and by design for us making this rule and submitting it for public comment, in the federal registry over the next 60 days from submission, the public will have a chance to have a more thoughtful and meaningful and robust conversation about what public art means and how rulemaking around public art should be considered. So we're really inviting more people to the conversation, more artists to be considered, and signaling that diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility as one of the president's main agenda items and priority policies extends to art in our federal buildings as well. And there must be some restrictions or some metrics for art suitable for, say, a public federal building, as opposed to what might be considered allowable for a museum. Because a lot of modern art depicts things that are done in an offensive way. And that's the way it is with art. You love it or hate it or it might offend you, but that doesn't mean it's not artistic. But on the other hand, for a publicly funded building or a place where the public might have to go, like a post office or something, which is, I realize, not GSA, but do you have any limitations then on subject matter that could nevertheless still meet the goals that you outlined for you know, diversity and inclusion? Sure. I'd like to differentiate between artists and you know, joining the National Registry for consideration and the commission's process itself. So every artist of every style is invited to join the National Artist Registry. During that process, again, the National Artist Registry will have outreach to artists for specific interests to be considered for commissions. That is also a process. By the way, I wanted to mention that to be considered for a commission, you do not have to be part of the National Artist Registry. 
It is simply a mechanism to streamline communications and keep an update about what's going on with uh, potential commission opportunities. The process itself for procuring art is actually done through SAM.gov, and those notifications for the commission themselves are coming through SAM.gov. When it comes to the style of art, as you mentioned, a lot of the final commission and the direction of the art or the aesthetic will be defined by the panel, as we mentioned before, and the federal agency client. That the client is you know, our customer, the agency that's going to be inhabiting that workplace or courthouse, as an example, will think about the architecture of the building, the fixtures, the design, the aesthetic, uh, and ultimately also the art. So we take those preferences and merge them with the needs of the space, uh, the input from local community, and then we come up with the best direction for that art piece. So it is a collective effort and hopefully one that is the most representative of the stakeholders for that space and community. And generally, how permanent are these things considered, especially, say, something like a painting inside? But I guess it could apply to anything because you wouldn't want to have you know one administration come and schmear out the thing that was put in last year, and then in four years, somebody else comes in. And paints that out. I mean, there is some value to having, even if it's provocative, to have it there for the sustainment of, right. I don't know, maybe people's perception of the permanence and stability of the government. When we say permanent, we mean permanent. These commissions are considered part of the architectural integrity of the building. And uh, those pieces stay with the building through the building's life cycle. Got it. And by the way, what happens if something gets damaged and the artist is no longer available? Does that ever happen? A leak or something? Or that I'm not sure of. I can ask the fine <laughs> arts. Uh, but again, the seeding and watering, if you will, of the art is the responsibility of GSA and our fine arts team. Well, you can always so. call the Vatican. They know how to fix old <laughs> paintings. They do it all the time. And with respect to what it is that you're presenting in terms of the diversity and equity imperative that is extant now, do you find that a committee is able to agree on something and yet you can only show one thing in a painting? You can't show everything in a community. And something sure. that's inside, say, a downtown St. Louis building is going to have people from every walk of life, every race, color, creed, and so forth. And so how does a committee end up with something that will appeal to everyone, but just by nature of the fact that it's a single piece of art can't look like everyone? Right. Well, that's why we need to commission more art, right? <laughs> so there is a broader representation. But um, generally speaking, you know, the direction and aesthetic of the art could, you know, speak to certain community members, but more generally, it could speak to the relevance of the location or simply depicting conceptual or realistic moments in American life. Um, part of the art on our walls and our federal buildings is also meant to celebrate the trajectory of America and the rich tapestry of American experience. Hopefully, everyone will resonate with, again, and these are these are really big pieces, right? You're standing at the foot of a building or in front of a public sculpture, and you just kind of see the scale and know that this was built with a collaboration of public servants with public dollars. And hopefully that stirs people to be excited about what their government can do in their community. Andrea O'Neill is Senior Advisor to the Administrator for Equity at the General Services Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. We'll post this interview along with a link to the final rule at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner 
1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 
12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, And I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And 
you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.